boy. Let's go. No, now I'm chasing Ilyas uh, <laughs> in the dark, in the staircase. I'm actually having my phone as a torch. Mommy, <laughs> what are you doing? You're listening to someone living through a war. Mommy, bye-bye tomorrow. Uh, for, for the fifth time, I'm promising him over and over, especially this week that I'll take him out. Mommy, tomorrow we'll go out. This is 27-year-old Sukaina. She lives in Yemen's capital, Sana'a. And right now, she is trying real hard to keep her two-year-old boy entertained. She's one of two people we're meeting in this episode who'll take us along for a day or two of their lives in a country that's been under constant bombardment and a blockade for close to three years. I'm Jasmine Bayomi, and you're listening to The Debrief. So before we get started with our last episode of this year, just a quick note. If you enjoy listening to The Debrief, please spread the word. Tell your mom and your friends, your brother and your sister, your teacher and your colleagues to tune in and subscribe. They can find us pretty much everywhere on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else they get their podcasts. Okay, so back to the war in Yemen. See, here's the thing. Yemen stories like the ones we're telling today are pretty rare. That's because covering Yemen is a huge challenge. It's almost impossible to get any information from inside of the country. I mean, sure, some organizations have been allowed to enter certain areas, like Adan, but Sana'a, for example, is pretty much off limits. So I got in touch with the NGO Save the Children in Yemen, and their head of media, Nadine Drummond, she put me in touch with two of her Yemeni colleagues, Sukaina and Anas. You've already met Sukaina, so here's Anas. Hey. Good morning. My name is Anas. I live in Sana'a, Yemen. I am a father of a one-year-old daughter. It's morning now, and last night was difficult. The airplane was uh, whirling over the city. We expected airstrikes. I couldn't sleep. I was worried. Getting in touch with people in Yemen is anything but easy. It took me weeks to get a hold of Anas and Sukaina. The best way to communicate was actually with voice messages. So that's what we did. For a few days, Anas, Sukaina and I sent voice messages back and forth. I told them about my life. So I am in the middle of packing in my room, watching Al Jazeera on the side and... And Anas and Sukaina told me about theirs. Now it's almost midday. I am going to lunch. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, my mom had made me amazing pancakes. But I wanted to get a better impression of who these two are. So I asked their boss, Nadine. So Sukaina, for me, is unique among Yemeni women. She has a love marriage. She has a son who she's devoted to, and she is like sunshine. 
Sakina represents the stereotype of Yemen prior to 2015. Sukaina is definitely a ray of sunshine. She was so excited when she learned that she was pregnant. She threw a party for her family and bought a bunch of books about all the things that pregnant women need to do to take care of themselves. What to eat, how to stay fit, what music to listen to. But just a week after that, all hell broke loose. And the conflict in Yemen just escalated drastically. I remember the ni- that night very well. We were half asleep when we f- when we heard the warplanes, a lot of warplanes flying. All of a sudden, like they were caged and suddenly let out. And then uh, the missiles started dropping one after the other. Um, me and my husband jumped out of uh, up uh, terrified and we went downstairs under the, our building's uh, staircase with neighbors with their children we were all crying and we were all saying prayers and calling our families and friends and saying goodbyes and please forgive forgive me if i ever upset you you know all this last day last minute you are alive say everything you want to say before you die or be killed it was awful it's the worst night of my life um my pregnancy was very difficult um unlike many you know many mothers you know it's easy you get to eat what you want you have the craves and you have all that but for me no i was just craving for a good night's sleep in the end, Sukaina gave birth to Elias. He's now two and he's the light of her life. Oh, I just, I, I wish I can secure a bright future for him and just ensure that he would have a good life and a better life, a better life living here. Um. Okay, now I'm going to start crying. I don't want to start doing that. Then it will be unstoppable. <laughs> Anna's daughter is a year old. Anas is from Hajar. So he's from one of the governorates that really suffer as a result of the conflict. He's my political guy. Anas is really passionate and he is in a lot of pain, like, like Sakina, about what's happening because they're powerless. Or they feel powerless. And it's hard when you live in a country where your passport is valueless. The uh, former president of Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh, was killed. And uh, he played significant role in the politics and now he's, he's gone. What we care about is what's next. All right. Anas just brought up Yemen's former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh. So let's rewind and let me quickly try to break down how we got here. I mean, Middle East politics can seem like a soap opera, except in this case, all that drama claims actual lives, thousands of them. The war has been going on for roughly three years now, causing the world's largest humanitarian crisis, according to the UN. Yemen is facing the world's largest humanitarian crisis with nearly 21 million people in need of emergency aid or protection. Most of those people are children. 
More than 10,000 have been killed and more than 3 million have been displaced so far. Not to mention that there's a looming famine, a cholera outbreak and lately a diphtheria outbreak. About 130 children die every day in Yemen, almost entirely of preventable causes like starvation and disease. Only a few years ago, in 2011, Yemenis, just like people in other Arab countries, called for change. They saw an opportunity when the Arab Spring toppled dictators across the Middle East. Former President Ali Abdullah Saleh was forced to hand over power to his deputy, Abdel Rabbu Mansur Hedi, who's now officially Yemen's political leader in exile. But the transition of power failed and resulted in mass unemployment, food insecurity, suicide bombings and a separatist movement in the south. And that's what sparked the war. On the one side, you have the Houthis, a political Shia rebel group. They're fighting together with forces that are loyal to former President Saleh. And on the other side, you have forces loyal to the new Hedi government. The Houthis have long unresolved grievances in Yemen. The biggest one is that they've been excluded from political power and influence, even though they're a significant minority. They started gaining ground in 2014 and took over part of the capital Sana'a, which neighboring Saudi Arabia saw as a threat. Why? Well, the Saudis worried Iran was gaining a foothold at their border. They accuse Iran of backing the Houthis, but Tehran denies any involvement. Anyway, the Saudis started a military alliance with a whole bunch of other countries and declared a war. And so you have what we've seen since 2015. Countless airstrikes and all the horror that comes with them. The Saudis want Abdel Rabbu Mansur Hedi back in power, but all their airstrikes have failed to defeat the Houthis and take back territory. Then, early this December, former President Saleh surprised everyone. He broke ranks with his Houthi allies and said he wanted to negotiate with the Saudi alliance. The killing of Ali Abdullah Saleh has plunged Yemen into even more uncertainty. Two days later, he was dead, at the hands of the Houthis. And now, Houthis are firing missiles at the Saudis, who in return are bombing Yemen with a vengeance. So who suffers? It's ordinary Yemenis like Anas and Sukaina, who are getting ready to go to work this morning. Don't judge me. <laughs> Up until recently, Sukaina used to bring her little one to nursery. But I'm a working mother, what can I do? So he's been in nursery ever since he was young, very young. But um, nowadays I just can't take him there. Although it's very close to my work, but I just, I just don't feel safe taking him. I just don't know what happens next. So she leaves him with her parents. And after a quick breakfast, she heads down to heat up her car. Hello. Um, while I'm heating the car, uh, I'm standing under the sun and listening to the beautiful, beautiful Feiruz. It is so cold. It's not even funny. Oh my God, it's crazy. It's so cold nowadays in Yemen. It has been this cold for the past month, almost. 
And it's just, it just, it just makes your fingers and your hands and your face and your nose freezing, literally. Um, inside the house, uh, we all wear many layers of clothes. It's morning now. The sun is shining and people are going in and out. It's like a behave. It's cold nowadays and uh, people do not have any means to get warm. What I mean by that is we basically do not have electricity. We have not had electricity for three years so far. Three years without electricity. That means no heating, no fridge, no washing machine and lights only if you've got solar power. So as they head to work, they warm up their cars, get in and like any one of us elsewhere in the world, switch on some music. Um, as usual, I have music loud inside the car. So um, if a missile drops out of here, that horrifying sound of it falling, I'd rather Okay, no rathering. <laughs> Actually, let's just uh, let's just not think about it right now while I'm driving. Nothing will happen. Everything will be okay, and all the negative ideas inside my head will go away. Wish me luck. I'm passing a military camp. The only road to my house. So Kaina's drive to work is actually pretty long. She used to live just five minutes away, but now it's half an hour past military targets, detours, and busy streets. She's already had to evacuate twice, and now she lives with her brother, his wife, their baby, both of her parents, and her son in an area that's a little bit safer. She's what NGOs would call an internally displaced person. There are millions like her in Yemen. But we don't really see the usual pictures of people living in UN tents, and there's a reason for that. You don't really have refugee camps or internally displaced people's camps in Yemen. It's a big disgrace for a Yemeni to go and stay in uh, a UN camp, the camps that you'd see in other types of war-torn countries. Yemenis don't do that. They go and set up their own encampments independently, or they'll move to other parts of Yemen where they know people from their village or people from their town or governorate. So Yemenis basically rearrange their entire lives around the likelihood of airstrikes. But sometimes there's really not much of a choice, like during lunch hour, for example. Now it's almost midday. I am going to lunch. It's lunch break. I am uh, going to a restaurant which is located to a, a target, a military target, but there is no place to go. There is nowhere else to go. So everybody is in the streets. Everybody is chatting. They feel a little bit safe because it's not the time when airstrikes happen. Markets are busy, restaurants are busy. You can see the business uh, is going now. But it's unfortunate that after a few uh, hours, 
the streets will be uh, dead again, which is sad, but it's the reality here. That's indeed a sad reality. But until that time comes, the streets are packed. I have been stuck in this junction for the past 10 minutes, and there is no policeman because, of course, they haven't received their salaries. So, Another reality of living under constant bombardment and blockade is that hardly anybody gets paid. Public workers, policemen, teachers and doctors, you name it. Many haven't been paid in more than a year, but they keep going. And so children leave school earlier, that is, if they go to school, and you can't get the care you need at a hospital, that is, if there's a hospital that hasn't been bombed. So Sukaina is stuck. So I really want to go home. It's almost 7.30. Oh my God, they are now fighting. That was just, that is just great. Now they're fighting because no one want to give the other a chance. That, that, that's new with Yemenis. Now everybody is just so tired of it and nobody wants to take patience. And nobody wants to be patient. I'm gonna be here for it. Oh God, I just hope nobody. Oh my God. Oh, oh, I'm done. I passed it. I, I feel so happy just to, to leave this crazy traffic. Oh my God. The choking traffic is just another symptom. Infrastructure has been destroyed and it's virtually impossible to import fuel and food. 17 million people are at risk of famine and diseases. So bus fares in some places have gone up by more than 50%, which limits our beneficiaries' ability to get to our programs. But fuel is also needed to power generators, the generators that are used for the pumps to keep water clean. You need fuel for our water trucking. Four million people in Yemen rely on water trucking, the trucks that go into communities and provide clean water. If we don't have fuel or access to enough fuel, we cannot deliver clean water. And of course, if we're not able to deliver clean water, then we have a catastrophe and, and a rise in even more waterborne diseases. So to save fuel, people are finding workarounds. I see people uh, riding bicycles instead of cars, sometimes motorcycles because they're more economic. Well, I myself drive economic. I don't go as fast to save some fuel. Sukaina's and Anna's voice messages to me have this recurring theme of saving fuel. There's this one time when Sukaina thinks she can use a weekend day to run a bank errand. No way, the bank is closed. No, 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 no. Please don't be closed. It's still 12. It's still 12 a.m. 12 p.m. Why would it be closed this early? I couldn't believe it. Oh, my mom will go crazy. She really needs me to throw money very urgently. Let me throw the news to her. Mama, guess what? Guess what? The bank is closed. The bank is closed. The bank is closed. I don't know. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry. I'll bring it. I'll bring you my good coffee. Oh, this is a bit uh, depressing. Um, the bank is closed, so basically I just wasted fuel for no reason. And right now I'm driving in a very crazy street. So, at the end of the day, Anas and Sukaina get home, exhausted. But for Sukaina, this is the best part of her day, when she gets to see her little one. I just got home. It's almost 8 o'clock. And guess who I'm gonna meet right now after a long day? Baby? Hi? Come, come, hug! Hi! Voila! <laughs> you fake crying? Wow, you fake crying! <laughs> What's wrong? Hi, mommy did! Hello? Where's your sheep? Sukaina thinks about Elias all the time. She rushes to him when he's upset and gets emotional whenever she imagines his future. Just like any other mom. Or so you'd think. War does unthinkable things to people, even mothers. Here's an instance when Nadine visited some charity recipients in a nutrition clinic. And there was one mother that I met. She had a, a child. And this child was starving to death. Fatima was so weak that when she cried, you could see the depression in her lungs. So you knew she was crying. But when she was crying, it was such a pressure on her heart. You could see her heart beating at speeds that, I'm, that were quite unhealthy for a child or for a baby. And she was 18 months old. When she cried, no actual sound. She wasn't even strong enough to generate the kind of sound that babies have when they cry. And, of course, she made the face of a crying baby, but no tears ran from her eyes. She was so dehydrated, her tear ducts were dry. <sighs> the suffering has become such that the mothers don't have the reactions that me as a Westerner expects a mother to have. It was, yes, this is my child. I don't have any money to feed her. I'm an internally displaced person. We came from Haja, our village was bombed and we fled to uh, Sadar. The encampment we were staying at was bombed. We fled to Hedeida and now we're here. And she'd already lost the baby before Fatima. And she already had four other children. And so she had to find a way to control her emotions so that she could be the mother she needed to be for her four living children. Getting aid to children like Fatma and her mother is a challenge. Because of the Saudi-led blockade, there are no commercial flights in or out of the country, which means that no food or medicine gets in unless it's on a humanitarian aid plane. A temporary loosening of the blockade has now left aid organizations trying to catch up. Both Anas and Sukaina consider themselves lucky, in a way. Lucky to be alive, lucky to have paying jobs, lucky to be able to take care of their families and loved ones. Yeah, that's about it. Right now, I'm playing and sitting on my grandmother's wheelchair. 
I don't know why why I'm sitting here because it has a you know it's uh, I can see the nice view of the sunset it's Maghrib time it's night now in Sana'a it's 11 o'clock I am going to bed it's very cold it's very very cold for people in Yemen this has been the coldest season it is quiet outside I cannot hear cars I cannot hear anything except fighter planes that are screaming in the sky of the city I don't know where they're going to hit next we just sleep and we never know if we're going to wake up again it's very very difficult to realize that you cannot protect your loved ones the weather is cold and uh, we don't have heaters here we barely have uh, solar systems for lighting well sometimes we can charge our phones that's lucky right yeah i guess lucky is one way of looking at it so as they sit in their rooms lit with the last bit of power of their solar power systems there's one constant thought how do we get out of here it's like every night i wait for my daughter to sleep so that she cannot hear those bombardments this is our country and it's difficult for yemenis to get visas so i have thought of traveling but there were a lot of difficulties Plus, I have a wife and a child. I have my father, my mother. I have uh, four siblings. It's like I cannot leave them behind. Oh, sorry. I, I, I was upset for a minute. I thought I heard uh, a warplane, but no, it's nothing. In case, in case right now you hear this very annoying sound, let me come closer. I'll tell you what it is in a minute. I bet you don't know what it is. Let me introduce you to the sound of my everyday life. That sound is a warning. The solar energy system in the house is about to run out of power. Only people with a bit of money can afford to have one, and it's six hours of electricity tops. Isn't it annoying and so irritating? This is the call of the last minute of solar system. So in a few minutes, I'll be out of light and I'll be using my phone's torch because I, I made sure I charge it, otherwise I'll be in the dark. Well, the plane is still screaming in the sky and uh, I will just make sure my baby is all right. I'll leave you there. And we'll leave you here as well. This is the final episode of The Debrief for 2017. Bringing you stories from around the world every week has been an incredible ride for our team. We're four people spread across three continents. So from me... Jasmine Bayumi and producer Mohsen Ali in Qatar, audio producer Lorenzo Colentiniano in Romania, and 
executive producer Yasser Khan in Canada. Happy New Year and peace on Earth in 2018. Be excellent to each other.